Is there anything we don't yet know about the Clinton machine? We'll ask the former lead Whitewater investigator. And best-selling novelist Joel Rosenberg bases his fiction on the analysis of events in the Middle East. We'll talk to him about his latest book. Plus, we'll continue to address the reality of the resurrection. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Crystal College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Your host is Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson. I'm still in Bible country. I am still in the text. Jesus was a poor black man who lived in a country and who lived in a culture that was controlled by rich white people. All right, who was that? That's Pastor Jeremiah Wright, Barack Obama's pastor and mentor. Obama says this man was the inspiration behind his book, The Audacity of Hope. What do you think of that language? Where is that coming from? What kind of doctrine? What kind of theology is that? You've heard that soundbite all week. Very few people talking about what undergirds it, what's back of it. And this show is about the Christian worldview, and we found a soundbite where Pastor Wright was interviewed by Sean Hannity months and months ago, and in this interchange, Pastor Wright will reveal where this kind of language comes from. It's a kind of theology. Listen very carefully. If you're not going to talk about liberation theology that came out of the 60s, systematized black liberation theology that started with Jim Cohn in 1968. Reverend? All right, that's enough of that. Jim Cohn, black liberation theology, and he repeated it again and again and again with Hannity. I'm announcing tonight that in one week, on Thursday night, next week, we will spend the entire hour with Dr. Barry Creamer, a theologian here at Criswell College, analyzing, understanding, and biblically critiquing liberation theology, particularly black liberation theology, James Cone. And we'll find out why Jeremiah Wright talks the way he does, and uh, really why we shouldn't be surprised when we hear Obama say that he preaches a social gospel. That's code for liberation theology. It's code for this kind of racially loaded rhetoric. Also, later today in this program, we continue our theme on the resurrection. You don't want to miss Dr. Daniel Street, 
on the importance of the resurrection, and even Dr. W.A. Criswell, a voice from the past on the resurrection. As well, later in the show, we have Joel Rosenberg. He writes about international terror and prophecy. He's just written a new book, Dead Heat. You don't want to miss that later in the program. Also, Dr. Johnson, in the news, of course, is the release of Hillary Clinton's schedules as First Lady. And uh, this really doesn't reveal anything too surprising. But with this presidential race for the Democratic uh, nomination, we've still got to wonder if she's got anything up her sleeve. So we have as our guest, former investigator in the Whitewater scandal. Remember that? He is David Bossie. He's president of Citizens United, which is a grassroots conservative organization that's based in Washington, D.C. Now, during the Clinton administration, David Bossie was chief investigator for the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Government Reform and Oversight. He has a new book out. It's called Hillary, The Politics of Personal Destruction. And David, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, with the release of these papers, we're seeing a lot of traditional uh, first lady stuff on her schedule, uh, diplomatic protocol and so on. So when you look at those and uh thinking of your experience with the Clintons, are there some smoking guns out there that we are just uh, sort of sitting on? uh, You picked it. Look, that's exactly right. It's not what's in the documents. It's what's not in the documents. It's always the question. And with the Clintons, you always have to wonder if they release something, what are they hiding? Um, I'm a a fairly cynical guy uh, when it comes to uh, their honesty uh, and their integrity. Uh, But I can tell you, uh, what's uh, passed is prologue, and, and what they have done here uh, is what they did their entire time in, in, the, uh, uh, in the White House. They dump an entire amount of information when the, when the nation is looking elsewhere. They could have released these records at any time. When did they come out? Right at the height of the Jeremiah Wright controversy about Obama, so fewer people are paying attention to Hillary first. That's a classic Clinton thing to do. They, back when I was uh, running the congressional investigations and the Senate investigation, we would know on the Friday night, we could literally, it was like textbook, we would, on a Friday night of a holiday weekend, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day. Hmm, what can we expect years, tonight? We, we always got 50 boxes of documents. It was like you could, you could set your watch by it. And it was really remarkable. And what they do is they do that purposefully because they do it when America's on vacation. They do it during the summer break. They do it during Christmas holidays. And here they did it. They could have released these records. They've been on. They've been demanded for you know months, right. years. David, and, let me jump in here right. because I want to ask you. You know, we've had this race between Hillary and Barack Obama. We've had uh, Barack Obama hurt a little bit this week, mm-hmm. uh, and the polls are showing it. Uh, the ones that have just come out today. But still, there are people who look at these things, like Dick Morris, for instance, that say there is no way that Hillary could get the nomination. Now, with this close race, just because of your experience, what do you think she could actually pull right now to grab the nomination? Well, look, first of all, the the politics of personal destruction, what they're going to do is they're going to, the Clinton campaign is going to continue to try to uncover anything they can related to the Jeremiah Wright story. So if um, for instance, um, uh, Barack Obama was at any, if they, if they could find and uncover video, audio tape, uh, any still photographs of, of him with Jeremiah Wright, 
you know, with any of these people that are that are now being reviled, if they could if they could get him in the pews while Jeremiah Wright is saying any of these. Now, the Clinton impossible. campaign wasn't behind the release of no, the no, Jeremiah no, Wright tapes. They what they will do, though, is capitalize on it. And people who are their supporters in Chicago, in, in Illinois politics, who know things, are now probably, I suspect, coming out of the woodwork. People who are Clinton supporters are trying to uncover and unearth whether they're the opposition research team, that they're the officials for the Democrat, uh, for, the, for the Clinton campaign, or if they are um, uh, others that just want to be friendly to her. Uh, but Harold Ickes, uh, Maggie Williams, the people who are running her campaign, were running the White House during all of right. these years. And so they are the best at what they can do of uncovering and really tarring uh, people uh, with with things that are whether they're true or not, they don't really care. They want to put the accusation out there so that it harms them. So, so Barack Obama is going to get the full frontal between now and Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania primary uh, of the politics of personal destruction that that Hillary Clinton practices so well. You're listening to Jerry Johnson live with Penn and Extra. We're talking to David Bossy. He's written the book Hillary: The Politics of Personal Destruction. Mr. Bossie is the former chief investigator for the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Government Reform and Oversight, particularly during the Clinton presidency. Uh, David, let me ask you this question. Yes, you talk about personal destruction. Uh, let me ask you about some other revelations. We had the picture of Obama in the African garb. Drudge said that came from the Clinton camp. Mm-hmm. You had Geraldine Ferraro saying that Obama wouldn't be where he was if he were not a black man. You have Bill Clinton up there in the Carolinas saying, Look, um, Obama phenomenon, well, we remember Jesse Jackson got these kind of votes. Here's my question to you. Do you believe these sorts of racially loaded revelations uh, came from on high there in the Clinton camp? Is this is the way they operate? Look, um, the Clintons, uh, the two of them together, will do and say anything to to gain power, to be elected, and they will do and say anything to retain power. Um, and so, you know, do I think the Geraldine Ferraro uh, issue, for instance, I, look, Geraldine Ferraro, I disagree with her on lots of issues. Do I think she's a racist? No. Absolutely not. I mean, she's an analyst, and what she said was, if Barack Obama um, was white, his name could have simply been um, Chris Dodd or, 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 or uh, any of the other, or, or, or John Edwards, um, or, or, or the, the, I'm sorry, the Delaware Senator, uh, Joe Biden, um, you know, because they all espouse virtually the same issues. I mean, it, from a political standpoint, they're all equally to the left. And Barack Obama's voting record and his positions on issues are virtually the same as Chris Dodd's and Joe Biden's and John Edwards. Well, let me get to this question, though, yes, because uh, personal destruction, subtitle of your book there, uh, what do you think they're prepared to do in the Clinton camp? I mean, Obama is ahead in the delegate count. Mm-hmm. What are they prepared to do to well, get this gonna, nomination? Yeah, what they're going to do is the Harold Ickes of their campaign, the guys who are really the, the tough, heavy hitters, they're going to go out and they're going to be calling all of these superdelegates. And that's where they're going to be playing the race card behind the scenes. And they're going to say, this guy can't win the general election against John McCain Jeremiah Wright is going to be effectively his Willie Horton, which is what what they've already been saying. Um, and they're going to be saying, look, this guy is a silver bullet uh, death, you know, against him in the sense of, uh, of of 
you know the 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 polls. Uh, you could see that it, McCain's pulled ahead uh, by double digits uh, just in, in in today's polling. But they're going to be doing that behind the scenes, and they're going to be doing a heavy hand of it. Uh, and I suspect that you'll see if she wins big in Pennsylvania. Um, then this thing will have had a big impact. And it's a, and Pennsylvania, you know, there's a lot of delegates there. And if she yeah. wins congressional districts very big, and she wins a lot of them, she's going to make up a lot of votes. And, and then we'll be talking about uh, those superdelegates from Pennsylvania. Okay, and, David, and what states. about Michigan and Florida? Because mm-hmm. I noticed a news report today, uh, in USA Today, that some of the uh, donors who have said they would fund a second primary in Michigan are actually tied to the Clinton campaign. Are you familiar well, with that? Well, clearly she needs Michigan and, and Florida, especially now, um, where where maybe she would have not won them, um, you know, uh, between Super Tuesday and the time this, this uh, story broke. But now... She clearly will be the beneficiary if they would do do-overs. If she wins, those are big states. She wins the popular vote. She could, conti- you know, she continues to rack up. If she- in Pennsylvania, that's an important thing for Obama. But is she getting her people to fund a primary? Sure. I mean, look, if the, if the Democratic Party and the state legislature will go for it, um, you know, look, that's the, that's what I said earlier. They're willing to do and say anything to win. And if they can get their their donors to put up the five million bucks it costs. To, uh, to fund a, re, a recount, hey, she's going to do it. Hey, David, I never encourage anyone to bet or to gamble, but I have to ask you this question. Yes, if you had to put your money on Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, who do you think the Democrat nominee will be? Um, Hillary Clinton. And, Fascinating. And that's, hmm. that's a contrary opinion. I think most people would say Barack Obama. They will find a way. She's going to win. They'll find a way. Yep. David Bossy has written the book Hillary, The Politics of Personal Destruction. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, there it is. You heard it on Jerry Johnson Live. The former chief investigator for the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Government Reform and Oversight during the Bill Clinton presidency says he believes the Clintons will find a way. Hillary Clinton will be the nominee. What do you think of that? Obama is ahead in the elected delegate count, but the Clintons will find a way. Well, I want to remind you, we're concerned about what the Bible says. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Fact is, Obama and Clinton are for the pro-homosexual agenda, the pro-abortion agenda, the pro-tax agenda, the pro-government health care agenda, um, the pro-gun control agenda. They really are on the wrong side of the major issues. They're for the pro-retreat agenda in Iraq. Well, we'll keep following this story. But uh, let's go spiritual now and get out of the political muck. When we come back, it's Resurrection Sunday. Are you ready? Well, we'll help you get ready as we think about what the Bible says about the importance of the resurrection. It's Jerry Johnson Live with Penn Dexter. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. 
Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. But God raised him from the dead. That's Acts chapter 13, verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We're talking about the reality of the resurrection. We're taking your emails. Talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. What does the resurrection mean to you? We've been talking about evidences for the resurrection. Today we're going to talk about the importance of the resurrection. What difference it makes in your Christian life. I talked some time ago with Professor Daniel Street here at Criswell College. He teaches New Testament and Greek. He's a graduate of Criswell College of Yale Divinity School and also a Ph.D. candidate at Southeastern Baptist Seminary. And I asked Professor Street to talk about the importance of the resurrection. First of all, I'd just like to address the importance of the issue. So often, I think around the time of Easter, we get a lot of apologetics that are done trying to prove that Christ was raised from the dead. I think those are great, um, a necessary response to the secular attack, the skeptic attack. But the New Testament spends less time proving that Christ was raised and more time explaining the significance of the resurrection. So I think that our priorities should be somewhat parallel to the New Testament's priorities. What we need to emphasize is what Christ's resurrection means. That's something that's minimized, I think, in a lot of gospel presentations. So often we hear the gospel presented as Christ died for you, and we leave him in the grave. Um, A dead Savior is no Savior at all, and really that would be the New Testament's primary affirmation, that Christ is raised from the dead and he's presently able to save us. Without the resurrection, the cross is powerless. Well, that takes us then to 1 Corinthians 15. It's the, it's the chief chapter, I think, in the New Testament and the whole Bible about the resurrection. You teach New Testament in Greek. Tell us what that chapter tells us about the importance of the resurrection. Yeah, Paul really develops his ideas here in response to the Corinthians who seem to be questioning not simply the resurrection but even the necessity of the resurrection. And so Paul wants to make clear to them that he preached the resurrection from the beginning, that the resurrection is essential to the gospel, that it's essential to Paul's trustworthiness. He says if Christ is not raised, then we're liars, we're false witnesses against God. Paul makes several points then. He says that if Christ has not been raised, in verse 17, your faith is worthless, 
you are still in your sins. So we're reiterating here the point we made before that a dead Savior is no Savior at all. Stop right there because, you know, some people will say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. Right. And that statement you just read from 1 Corinthians 15, actually Paul says just the opposite. Exactly. Without the resurrection, your faith is in right. vain. Yeah, it's not the act of faith that's so important to Paul. It's the objective content right. of that faith. Good. The object of faith, and that is a resurrected Christ who's able to save. I think a second point that Paul makes, and one that's a little bit overlooked, I think, in the exposition of 1 Corinthians 15, is that the resurrection makes sense of Christian obedience. The kind of ministry that Paul undertook, a ministry which was basically a living martyrdom, dying every day, fighting, he says, with wild beasts at Ephesus, being shipwrecked, hungry, fasting, tortured, stoned, persecuted, pursued. None of that makes sense if Christ isn't raised from the dead. He says, if Christ is not raised, I am of all men most to be pitied. So he's doing it for a dead man and a dead cause without the resurrection. Yes. What else in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, perhaps the most important point is later in the chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54, It says that when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal would have, will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And what Paul believes about Christ's resurrection it is, is that it is the beginning of God's victory over death, over the power of death. The sting of death is sin. Christ has paid for the sins. He's been resurrected from the dead. His resurrection guarantees believers' resurrection and the ultimate defeat of death. So without a resurrected Christ, we are under the power of death. Wow, that's, that's powerful. My guest is Daniel Street. He teaches New Testament and Greek here at Criswell College. Uh, Daniel, take us to some other passages in the New Testament. We're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, but the resurrection is emphasized in many other places. Uh, what are some other passages we should know about? Well, I can think of throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes various claims about who he is. I understand the resurrection to be a vindication of those claims. God is affirming that Jesus was not a liar when he claimed to be the Messiah, when he claimed to be the Son of God. By raising Jesus from the dead, God is putting his stamp of approval on Mm -hmm. Jesus' message. If Jesus had claimed simply to be the Messiah, died on a cross, and stayed in the grave, his claims would have been proven false. So the resurrection vindicates his claims. That's very important throughout the Gospels. I can think, though, of two passages in particular that stress this idea of defeat over death. That would be Colossians 2, which says that having canceled out the certificate of debt against us, Colossians 2.14, Christ paid for our sins, he nailed them to the cross. And then the resurrection, I think, is on display in verse 15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display over them, triumphing over them. That Christ's resurrection is a defeat not only of death, but also of um, the powers of darkness that that hold people under the power of sin. That's good. Um, I think of um, John writes, of what he saw and heard from the resurrected Christ, I am he that liveth, was dead, behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. It reminds me of what you've just said. Other passages that come to mind. Yeah, Hebrews 2 and 2.14 says that um, through Christ's death, and I think the resurrection is assumed here, that he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, so that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. It just reiterates 
that through his death and resurrection, Christ has decisively defeated Satan, taken away Satan's main weapon by which he enslaves people. That is death. You know, a lot of times people think that doctrine is not practical or theology is uh, only for the experts. But what you're saying here is um, Christians who are living a life of discouragement or defeat or fear can really find a practical hope, a practical confidence and power in the doctrine of the resurrection. I have a question for you. You know, I look at a passage like uh, Philippians 3.10 where Paul says uh, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection, his resurrection. What do you think Paul meant by that prayer? I think that Paul understands believers as being resurrected on the coattails of Jesus. It's all part of one big resurrection. And believers' hope is to participate in the same power that God displayed in that resurrection, that they might one day be resurrected and have a glorified body. I think that's so important, especially in a day that stresses spirituality um, and looks upon the body as something to be escaped from. Paul thinks the body needs to be redeemed, not escaped from. And that what we're looking for is not some disembodied, spiritual or soulish kind of existence, but an embodied existence, but a body not subject to corruption, not subject to death, a body in which we could truly worship God the way we were meant to. That's good. The last passage I want to read is a prayer of Paul where he prays that the Ephesian Christians may understand God's power to us who believe. And then he describes that power in Ephesians 1.19, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead. What is Paul praying there that Christians would know? Mm. Uh, This is one of my favorite passages. I open my New Testament survey classes with this passage, with this prayer. And I think that Paul knows that he is making demands on believers that are so extraordinary that the only way they could be accomplished is if they appreciated the kind of power that's at their disposal. They're to fight in chapter 6 against rulers and authorities. How could they possibly do this unless they had the power a great power, the kind of power that could raise someone from the dead, unless they had that kind of power behind them. And so I think Paul's prayer is that we would grasp and have an understanding of that kind of power so that we could live fearless lives in devotion to our Savior. That's Daniel Street, who teaches New Testament and Greek here at Criswell College, a product of Criswell College. He graduated with his bachelor's degree here, did a master's degree at Yale University Divinity School, Ph.D. candidate at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. That was a wonderful interview, Dr. Johnson, and I think uh, the last point that was made out of the book of Ephesians is the one that really strikes home with me is important to me, and that is that same power uh, that resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that will be on display as believers are resurrected is also the power that allows me to live the life that God has called me to live. And to me, that is the good news, and when we say he is risen on Easter Sunday, that's what I think about. One hundred and four times the New Testament mentions the resurrection. Mm. Raised is 37 times. Rise is once. Raise is once. Rise is 10 times. Risen 21 times. Rose six times. Rising one time. Life one time. Alive two times. Liveth is used six times. Brought again is used once. Quickened is used three times. Begotten is used once. Resurrection is used 11 times times. It's no wonder that Peter said when they were trying to pick a new apostle, a new disciple, he said, we've got to find someone who must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So in replacing Judas, they picked a disciple, 
And that person had to be a witness of the resurrection, Acts 1.22. Peter went on in that first sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 32, to say, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. The early church gave great witness to the resurrected Christ. What about you? What about me? Let's get ready for it. We're going to hear Dr. W.A. Criswell later on the resurrection. Tomorrow, a power pack show on the resurrection. But Joel Rosenberg coming up next. It's Jerry Johnson Live with Pennedexter. We'll be right back. do you feel like computers are running your life? Well, that was the theme of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, dead at the age of 90. And uh, this fellow, Clarke, uh, we're trying to cover the arts here on Jerry Johnson Live. And Pinedexter, my co-host, from time to time, we look at books, we look at movies, we look at what people are doing in the arts. But Arthur Clarke had a knack in science fiction for kind of predicting, actually, the way things would be on down the line. Here's correspondent Ravi Nesman with more on Arthur C. Clarke. Clarke wrote over 100 books, but he won his greatest fame as the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey. He was also a scientist who is credited with coming up with the concept of communication satellites in 1945. All right, sometimes we say that uh, reality is stranger than fiction, But oftentimes, um, reality um, develops (laughs) from some of this fiction, and it was the case with Clark. Well, speaking of prolific authors and speaking of people who predict things, uh, I'm not calling our next guest a prophet, but uh, whenever he writes a novel, it seems like half of it comes true. Well, maybe not half, but Joel uh, Rosenberg has a knack for combining prophecy and also his knowledge of Middle Eastern affairs with what is on the front page. Uh, He joins us now. Joel, thank you so much for being with us. It's good to be with you guys, but I'll tell you, I... uh I am praying to God that this, uh, the, 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 the scenario that I lay out in this new political thriller, Dead Heat, never comes true. Good. Well, we pray that too now, but, <laughs> but you do have a knack for timing because Dead Heat comes out. We're right in the middle of this hotly contested presidential campaign. I mean, China is in your novel, and uh, we're looking at what's going on in China coming up to the Olympics and their repression of, of Tibet. And uh, then we're, of course, looking for always there's something going on in the Middle East. So in a sense, uh, it hits uh, the, uh, the bookstores at an interesting time, doesn't it? Well, it does. Uh, Dead Heat is the fifth and actually the final uh, political thriller in the series that I began uh, in uh, 2002 with the first novel, The Last Jihad. And uh, it is really, as you say, it's about a hotly contested presidential campaign my fictional president has served two terms. He can't run again. The country is deeply divided over his Middle East policies. And as the two candidates begin to uh, fight for who will succeed him, uh, the race becomes so close, uh, the country so bitterly divided, that the race becomes a dead heat. And into that environment, a series of uh, uh, highly uh, orchestrated terror attacks 
uh, hit the United States when we least expect it. And it's this type of scenario that I've tried to write in Dead Heat. That's, I try to write it as realistically as possible, uh, meeting with Homeland Security officials, intelligence officials, military leaders, as I did research for Dead Heat. So it, it reads, I think, um, chillingly realistically. However, as I say in the author's note at the beginning of the book, I pray this never happens. It's not something I'm predicting. It's not something I saw in the vision in the middle of the night. It is fiction, but I think it, it, it warns us that this is the type of thing that could happen if our country gets the eye, our eye off the ball of radical terrorism. Well, you're uniquely qualified to uh, give that warning. Joel, because uh, as some of our listeners may not know, that you actually worked as a political consultant uh, before you became a best-selling author, and you've worked for people like Rush Limbaugh and uh, former Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, uh, Sharansky in Israel. So you've got experience uh, that you know is behind what you write. And the question I want to ask you is: you know, we do have this political campaign going on, and can you just kind of talk about terrorism, not only abroad but the threat of it here? In in this country and how uh, that threat plays into our political campaign. I guess really I could just uh, bring it down to the question, who do the terrorists hope wins? Well, uh, let me give a little context to that. It's a, it's, it's a, uh, it's a good question. Um, it, unfortunately, it's a good question because it's, it's very relevant to where we are right now. Uh, let's go back a year for a moment to say that uh, a year ago, former CIA director George Tennant uh, published a book in which he made the case that the number one objective of Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda uh, is to develop or to buy nuclear weapons that they can detonate inside the United States. It was a chilling uh, uh, and very candid admission from a former head of the Central Intelligence Agency, and it, and it showed us again why <clears throat> radical Islamic terror is so dangerous, because they don't want to just scare us, they want to annihilate us. Then in the fall, uh, on the September 11th anniversary, Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff uh, said that, he, that, the, that his team is actively preparing for the possibility of nuclear attacks inside the United States. Now, obviously, they're working round the clock 24-7 to prevent those things, but those are scenarios that they believe are realistic based on the intelligence they've gathered of the intentions uh, the desires of terrorist organizations and rogue regimes. So now you have to ask yourselves, okay, do we, are we going to elect a commander-in-chief going forward who understands the threat of radical Islam, has a series of policies that can pre- protect us, uh, and uh, really understands how to lead the military and our intelligence forces in uh, an existential battle for our survival? Uh, I wish that were the stuff of just of this dead heat novel. But those are the questions we're all asking as a country right now, and it's uh, it's a very sobering uh, question to ask. This is Jerry Johnson live with Pennedexter. Our guest is Joel Rosenberg. He's written the thriller Dead Heat, and there's some questions here, Joel. That um, as I'm looking at the press release on your book, and I want to read these questions because. Uh, I think they're linked together with our election season. Question one, could terrorists use a presidential campaign campaign season as a time to attack? Two, is the new commander-in-chief prepared and able to protect the U.S.? Three, 
Will the U.S. be so distracted by internal events that it is blindsided? Here's my question for you, Joel. I know that John McCain has said, look, I think terrorism, Islamo-terrorism, is the transcendent challenge of our time. So he's really running on this national security platform. And um, But a lot of people are asking, is Hillary Clinton, is Barack Obama, uh, are they ready for prime time? And you talk about, uh, you know, in the context of your book, a distraction uh, internal events. I mean, people are talking about health care and the economy and education when our very survival is at stake, if John McCain is right. Um, how do you think through this election cycle? Uh, you're obviously thinking about these things, uh, these themes in your book, but uh, how do you balance that out in your own thinking? Well, it's a, it's a good question, and uh, let me start by putting some cards on the table. Um, as you guys mentioned, uh, well, you didn't quite put it this way. You were very gentle, but I'm actually a failed political consultant. Uh, <laughs> I helped Steve Forbes lose two presidential campaigns, among my other um, <laughs> failed uh, consulting efforts. But, uh, you know, Steve Forbes uh, was a candidate for president running against John McCain in right. the year 2000 right. against Governor Bush. Obviously, we lost. Um, and, and so you should be aware of that as I say this. Look, there are some areas that I deeply disagree uh, with Senator McCain about, uh, particularly his approach over this past year or two on immigration. Uh, I don't think he's tough enough on our borders, and, I, and I, um, I'm concerned about that. But that being said, uh, the man's a war hero. Uh, he does understand the American military, and, has, and it was his strategy that he uh, basically insisted and persuaded President Bush to adopt when it came to the surge, to putting more troops on the ground in Iraq, and it has had a tremendous effect. I just got back from nine days on the ground in Iraq, and I'm telling you, I, was, I went through five provinces in nine days in a Chevy Impala, not an Apache, not a Black Hawk, uh, not a uh, armored Humvee, wow. and we were safe. And uh, it, it, we can talk more about that trip if you'd like, but the, the point is, we're making tremendous progress inside Iraq, and McCain gets a lot of credit. He understands how to lead the military. Now, uh, on the flip side, you actually have a dead heat right now between Senator Clinton and Senator Obama as they fight over who can surrender fastest in Iraq. That's right. This is a tremendous concern to me, uh, not on a partisan level, but on a policy level, You've got a situation in which both sides, both, both senators are saying they will bring American troops home fastest. They will effectively cut and run faster than the other. And they're, they're vying to win their nomination of the Democratic Party over that issue. Who well, you're right. It's faster? not a partisan issue. It shouldn't be. In fact, that national security expert Angelina Jolie has just returned from Iraq to say, <laughs> we need to stay here until we get the job done. Well, it's not a Republican right. or Democrat think, you know, issue if you watch this uh, objectively. Well, it, it, it of course is a partisan issue in the end, because we have to make a decision about who's right. going to lead the country. But I'm saying at this stage, uh, still in the spring, as a policy issue, I'm concerned. Mm. I'm concerned that uh, Senators Clinton and Obama... Uh, don't seem to understand just how much of a threat radical Islam is to our country. I'm a little concerned about uh, Senator Obama's pastor, 
who's been so closely identified with the nation of Islam, gave an award to Louis Farrakhan, and actually traveled to Libya to meet with Muammar Gaddafi with Farrakhan, according to the New York Times. Hey, you could, that would have been a fascinating fictional plot. Once again, reality, stranger than fiction. We've got to go. We're out of time, Joel. Joel Rosenberg has written the book, Dead Heat, a new thriller. Uh, go out and get it. Uh, it's fascinating. Thanks, Joel, for being with us. Thank you, guys. God bless. All right. When we come back, we're going to return to the theme of this week and this Sunday, the reality of the resurrection, a voice from the past, Dr. W.A. Criswell, comparing Jesus to Lenin. You don't want to miss it. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. We're going back to one of the great voices of the past, Dr. W.A. Criswell, the founder and chancellor of Criswell College, longtime pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas. Years ago, he preached a message, a very famous method, message called Death in Detente, about communism and our compromises with communism. And in this message, Dr. Criswell compared Lenin, particularly what the Soviets said about Lenin when he died, to Jesus Christ. And I want you to listen carefully. It's an old recording. You'll have to listen carefully to Criswell's description of going to the tomb of Lenin and contrasting that with Jesus Christ. I have an answer from heaven, along with those that always queued up to go into Lenin's tomb in the Red Square before those frowning Kremlin walls. I lined up and finally made my way into the tomb. And on this side, and on this side, and on this side, looking into the dead and silent face of Nikolai Lenin. He died in 1924 at the age of 54. His death came as a shock to the communist world. And when he died, the Grand Presidium, the Grand Presidium 
of the Supreme Soviet of Russia gave this announcement to the world, and I quote it verbatim. The Grand Presidium said, no man ever wrought as Lenin. He was the greatest teacher of all time. He was the greatest leader among men. He was the author of a new social order. He was the savior of the world. But he's dead. And as I walked on this side, and that side, and that side, I turned over in my mind that pronouncement of the Supreme Soviet. He was the greatest teacher. He was the greatest leader. He was the author of a new social order. He was the savior of the world, but he's dead. Look at it. Look at it. Still and silent. In death. Unknown to the Grand Presidium. Unknown to the Supreme Soviet that sits in the Kremlin. They failed their ultimate defeat in the very tent of the words that they used. He was the greatest He was the greatest leader. He was the author of a new social order. Dead. He was the savior of the world. He's dead. Look at him. With what glory and with what triumph does the Christian stand in this dark world? Raises his voice and lifts his face towards heaven and says, He's alive. He's alive. He was raised from the dead. There's no tomb before any crowning wall to which he can visit and say, There is our dead Christ. He's alive. And he reigns in heaven and someday he shall reign in earth. He is! He is! He is! He is the greatest teacher of all time. He is the greatest leader among men. He is the author of a new social order. He is the Savior of the world. Our coming reigning King. W.A. Chris Wall, uh, it's uh, fun to listen to him, even though it was a little difficult. Thank you for uh, giving us kind of the story beforehand, Dr. Johnson. You know, it occurs to me right now, as we are uh, watching these fights over somebody's pastor, uh, Obama's pastor right now, and we're talking about the policies that he advocates and the positions that he takes. But really, when you look at a minister, you look at the message about a person, a person who is God and the Son of God, and who gives us power for living because of his power of the resurrection. And, you know, it's not about where we stand on something. It's about who we know, who we worship, and who lives in us. Mm. If you want to read that entire sermon or hear it online, go to wachriswell.com, a fascinating website with over 2,000 sermons by Dr. W.A. Criswell, wachriswell.com. And our good friend, Dr. Uh, Jack Pogue, uh, has put this website together. We appreciate his ministry so much. But Dr. Criswell comparing Jesus to Lenin, the tomb of Lenin, Well, his body's still there. You can see it. A dead man. The tomb of Christ, empty. Muhammad in the grave. 
Confucius in the grave, Buddha in the grave, Zoroaster in the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ sets him apart from every other religious leader that ever lived. It also sets Christianity apart from every other religion that's ever been. Well, we're really not talking about religion today so much as the personal relationship between you and God. I want you to think about that for a moment because the resurrection is key here. We quote Romans 10.9 often, and do you remember that there is an emphasis on the resurrection? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's right. If you believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus that He is who He said He was, that He is God in the flesh, that He is the King, that He is the Lord, that He is the God-man. If you believe in your heart that that's who He is, who He said He was, and if you believe that God raised Him from the dead after He died for our sins, you will be saved. The resurrection is key. Only a living Savior can really save. And then the text goes on to say, For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes, you've got to admit that you're a sinner and that you've sinned. He is Lord. You've got to know that He died for your sins on the cross. That's right. But you must believe that He is risen from the dead. And if you call upon His name because He is alive, He can save you. He will save you. And you should look to Jesus today. You should believe in Jesus and come to Christ. Well, tomorrow, tune in again because Ben Witherington will be on to talk about the resurrection. Also, Lee Strobel, Dr. Daryl Bach. You don't want to miss it, the reality of the resurrection. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.